Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, amen. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you. And tonight, we of course reach the culmination of uh, really a three-week study of um, a document that I would argue is um, really not read or studied by Catholics as much as it should be. And I hope you've seen from our first week where we kind of did a flyover, and last week where we started getting into the text itself. That there's a lot to this document. Okay, and I don't just mean a lot in terms of, um, you know, ecclesiology, although it is that. I mean in terms of practical um, next steps. Uh, hopefully you've been taking notes or thinking about, like, well, how does this apply to me? Or how can I more live this out in my own life or maybe in my family or in my parish? And I think there's lots of things uh, together uh, that we've come up with. And, in fact, uh, I I'm going to ask some of you, uh, you know, certainly want to hear your questions, but as well as a question, if, you, if something has struck you about this document, uh, maybe instead of a, a, you know, a, a question, maybe just a comment about like, hey, you know, after reading this document, one of the things that I want to try to do in my parish, my life is blank. And maybe we can just hear from a couple of those if they come up. I think that'd be great because um, there's a lot of practical uh, things that I think we can take away from this. Okay, so if you weren't with us last week for part two, um, we talked a good deal about the church as mysterion. I'm going to put this in the, uh, I call it the chalkboard. Uh, and this is sort of the Greek transliteration, uh, the transliteration, I should say, of the Greek word uh, mysterion. It's the Greek New Testament word for mystery. As we saw, that's the title of the first chapter, and we spent some time there. And more broadly, we talked about how this document wants to root our ecclesiology and understanding of the church in this concept of mystery. Um, we talked about how it's, uh, the church is a supernatural work of God, right? But at the same time, it is a very touchable human institution. And it's very important to remember that, that both and. And if we, if we emphasize one or de-emphasize de the other, we're probably going to get our ecclesiology a little bit off, or at the very least, we're going to be frustrated with certain um, aspects of, of church life. Um, one of the things I also mentioned last week was how there is a kind of Christological analogy, just to press this one step further, right? It's not just that the church is a mystery, that it has both a divine and human dimension, but that they are interwoven that they're integrated in a, in a way that is, um, that is really inseparable. And by the Christological analogy, of course, we talked about how our Lord Jesus Christ is the God-man, right? 
how he is the word made flesh. Um, and so the divine son of the blessed Trinity um, descends and dwells among us, right? John 1, 14. And we have that notion in Catholic theology of the hypostatic union, right? Fully God and fully man. Okay, so taking that, um, we can apply that to several elements of theology. One is to scripture, and I talked about that last week, right? How God's word is both fully divine and also fully human. And, and we'll get into trouble there, you know? If we seek to make God's word only a divine word and de-emphasize the human, uh, it's very likely that we'll end up in some sort of a, a, a ditch or even a, a, a chasm. And one of those could actually be fundamentalism. No time to talk about that here tonight, but if you want to ask about it and you're unclear, I'll be happy to explain what I mean. But we can easily end up in a ditch with regard to our understanding of divine revelation and scripture if we get that out of whack. And the same applies to our ecclesiology, not just to our, our, our understanding of Scripture or to our Christology. So we talked about that last week, how there's, there's this beautiful integration. We also talked a lot about adoptive sonship. And I mentioned that in the document, this is a key theme, and here's why that's important. Tonight we're going to talk more about this notion of the unity of God's holy people, of the church, right? And because the church's mission is to extend the grace of Christ and the salvation of our Lord to all of creation and to all of humanity, we would do well to reflect that we, and really all of us, are adopted sons and daughters, right? It's important to keep that frame when we talk about things like ecumenism, or we're going to get into this in just a second here, this whole notion of how salvation subsists in the Catholic Church, but how it bubbles out uh, and is found among, um, in, in various facets outside of the church, but is subsists in a unique way within the church. So, so we'll talk about that as well. Um, last week, we also explored some of these various titles of the church. And I, if you haven't gone through the document, I would urge you to go through the document. And as you do so, uh, to pay close attention to these various the titles of the church. I'm not going to go through them all here, but just to name um, a few of them, uh, we have the Bride of Christ, we have the Sheepfold, the Cultivated Field, the Choice Vineyard, the Temple of God and House of God. I mentioned Bride of Christ and Mother. And that last one in particular is very crucial to the ecclesiology of not just Lumen Gentium, but of Vatican II and of the church. That is that the church is our mother. Uh, later, as I said, we'll finish out this hour by trying to focus on the final chapter, uh, which is uh, dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and um, we'll talk more about that as it, as it pertains to her as well. But I'd like for us to pick up where we left off last week, and that was in the Q&A. Someone had asked a question about uh, paragraph 8 of chapter 1. So I'm going to ask Angela, she might bring that text up now. And I'd like to make sure we're really crystal clear about this part of the text. It's really one of the, you might say, more um, controversial parts of Lumen Gentium. Looking right on the screen here where it begins, this is the sole church of Christ. Now, before I read this and comment on it, I just want to clarify what I mean by controversial. First, I don't mean that there's anything 
in this particular paragraph or teaching that is controversial to us as Catholics. What I mean is that this text has been often um, used, abused, misunderstood, and thrown out there in ways that have confused people, right? So the text itself is very, very clear, and actually is not really that complicated. However, we want to make sure we understand what it is and what it is not saying. So first, let me read it, and I'll make a few comments. So this is Lumen Gentium, chapter 1, paragraph 8, the second paragraph of chapter uh, of paragraph 8. It reads, This is the sole church of Christ, which in the creed we profess to be one holy Catholic and apostolic. And of course, those are the four marks of the church, right? That's what we profess. So this is the sole church of Christ. There is no other, right? Which in the creed we profess to be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, which our Savior, after his resurrection, entrusted to Peter's pastoral care. Now, um, it references there a very key text from the New Testament, which is John chapter 21, uh, verse 17. And you can take a look at that or, or jot down a note and look at it later. Uh, commissioning him and the other apostles to extend and rule it, that is the church, and see there Matthew 28, Jesus' great commission, and which he raises up for all ages as the pillar and mainstay of the truth. And there it references 1 Timothy 3.15, and that's actually the scripture that we began with right out of the gate um, two weeks ago about this time. Um, this church constituted and organized as a society in the present world, and here's our key phrase, subsists in the Catholic Church, subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. Now, one more sentence, uh, two more sentences here, and we're done with this paragraph, but uh, hang in there. This is very important. Uh, this, this word finishes up. Nevertheless, many elements of sanctification, right? Many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside its visible confines. Now, before we get into any of the commentary, I would suggest if you have a paper copy or if you can somehow do it on your, you know, like your uh, iPad or whatever with a, you know, electronic pen, whatever, you want to highlight that phrase, it's visible confines, right? That's very, very crucial to understanding and not misunderstanding it, right? Since these are gifts belonging to the church of Christ, right? The one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the soul church, right? They are forces impelling towards a Catholic unity. Okay, if I can just kind of come back on the, the screen there and want to thank Angela for all these great helps with the text as we're looking at big chunks of it. Um, so, so what does this mean? Well, let's just start with the real, real basics, right? First, obviously, Lumen Gentium here is underscoring something which obviously is crucial and which most of us, I trust, believe and know, right? That there is one and only one church, it is the church that Jesus Christ founded, right? The church has gone out of her way in this document and throughout Vatican II to describe the church as the bride of Christ, 
Right? I used to have a, a professor um, at Wheaton College where I did my master's degree. Now, he himself was, was not Catholic, um, but he was in some ways Catholic friendly. And if you're interested, you know, at another time, obviously not now, you can go on to uh, EWTN's uh, website for the show, The Journey Home. And I've been on there uh, three or four times. And one of those times I talked in particular about this particular mentor, um, although he was an Anglican priest and a, really an evangelical professor, he was one of the key people who helped um, in my own journey back to the Catholic faith. And again, that's for another time, but he had this great uh, phrase uh, and that is, he used to say, um, talking about the parousia, the second coming of Christ, where right? he would say, Jesus Christ is coming back for his bride and not for a harem. Now, I, I find that more amusing than ever today because he's not a Catholic, right? At least with a capital C, but he understand the Catholicity of the church, right? And he was trying to get us to, to think about this, um, the, the church uh, in her Catholicity and in her unity as the one body of Christ. So that's the first thing that needs to be stressed about this very key paragraph. Now, let's talk about this word subsists. And here I want to ask you, if you have a Bible and a catechism, we're going to spend just a couple of minutes and do a little kind of word study on this here to understand uh, what is being said and what is intended by this word subsist. And rather than just giving you my own words or my own color commentary, I thought it'd be helpful if we turn to uh, the catechism, and I'll put in the paragraph number, not page number, right, but with the catechism, we're talking paragraphs. And so it's paragraph uh, number 846 through 848, uh, right? So just those three paragraphs. And so it begins with this uh, really uh, title, uh, Outside the Church, There is No Salvation, Extra Ecclesium Nola Salus, uh, from the, the Latin, Outside the Church, There is No Salvation. And that begins by asking this question, pretty good question, right? How are we to understand this, right? How are we to understand this affirmation? often repeated by the church fathers. Now, for simplicity, the text I gave Angela here, I've taken out the footnotes. Um, but this is just a, a little side uh, teaching note. As you're reading the catechism, it's very helpful to look up those footnotes. Now, some of them are going to be um, scripture, and those are easy to find, right? And there's no excuse for not looking up those when you need more clarity. And we're going to look at a couple of the texts, by the way, that the Catechism mentions, which is very, very helpful, very, very interesting, by the way. We'll get to those in a, just a couple moments. But now some of those you can't necessarily look up, but they'll give you the headings, like it'll say, you know, Vatican I, or it'll say St. Augustine on the Trinity. Um, however, there is a doc, there is a, a book, I should say, called the Compendium, of the catechism, and this, if you're interested in more advanced study of the catechism, would be a great step, because what it does is it gives you essentially every footnote, gives you the text, I should say, of the footnotes. Um, and that, in that sense, you can go back and look at the, the exactly what they, ever, oh, sorry, what the catechism is referring to, whether it's the Apostle Paul or the book of Genesis, or whether it's a quote from St. Jerome. Okay, reformulated positively, it means that all salvation comes from Christ the head through the church, which is his body. 
basing itself on scripture and tradition, the council teaches, by the way, this is uh, quoting Lumen Gentium, that the church, a pilgrim on earth, a pilgrim on earth, is necessary for salvation. The one Christ is the mediator and the way of salvation. He is present to us in his body, which is the church. Dear friends, this is why it's so important to not overlook these titles that are mentioned here in Lumen Gentium. I'm specifically talking about that title of the church as the bride of Christ, right? Now we're beginning to see the, you might say, the theological math, right? Uh, in terms of Christ is the head and the bridegroom, the church is the body and the bride of Christ. So therefore, if all salvation is through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, who's the head of the body, then it follows, you might say axiomatically, that the church is integral for salvation, is necessary, as the uh, catechism puts it. Um, he himself explicitly asserted the necessity of faith, and I want to emphasize this word baptism. We're going to come back to that in a second. And baptism, right? faith and baptism. And thereby affirmed at the same time the necessity of the church, which men enter through a, bap through a baptism as the door, as a door. Hence, they could not be saved who, knowing that the Catholic Church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would either refuse to enter it or to remain in it. Now, what the catechism is getting at there is it's not, you know, decreeing or deciding who is and who is not saved, but it's kind of giving us a solemn warning, right? That if you do know, if you do understand that the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus Christ and then refused to enter it, well, that's a big problem in terms of salvation, right? Now, we want to be careful and we don't want to ascribe uh, that belief, or you might say that lack of belief, to, let's say, non-Catholics, be they, I don't know, you know, Jewish, Muslim, uh, or let's even say, you know, Orthodox, or, or, or are many various evangelical brothers and sisters, right? The church is not saying here anything about people groups. What it is saying is, if a person understands, right, and really ex uh, gets intellectually, logically, that the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus Christ and is necessary for salvation, and then refuses that, well, that's a big deal, right? That, that's kind of a deal breaker, because what you're really doing is, in a certain sense, this is kind of coming very close to that notion of um, the one unforgivable sin, right? Uh, which is to say, one who willingly and persistently rejects Christ's message of salvation. Now, again, I want to be very, very clear. If there's a person out there tonight who's a, you know, Bible goes to a Bible-believing church and you know is interested in in you know in, in Catholicism, but they're not there yet, um, the church is not making no such judgment that they're not saved. What it's saying is really for a person who's come to the understanding a full and complete understanding is as humanly possible for such a person to understand in this world and then rejects it, then, you know, folds their arms and says, no, I won't go in. Well, what you're really doing is not just then refusing the church, but you're refusing Christ himself, right? Okay. Next paragraph. Um, 847. This affirmation 
is not aimed at those who, through no fault of their own, do not know Christ in his church, which is what I just said, right, to introduce it. Those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and are moved by grace, try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, those two, and you may want to underscore this, may achieve eternal salvation, right? This, this here, too, trips people up because they say, well, you know, somehow in, in Vatican II, the church began teaching universalism. No, heck no. There's no universalism here. Universalism would be, you know, uh, Christ died for all men and we're all saved. We've all, we're all in the kingdom of God, right? That's sort of universalism. That's not repeat. That's not what's being taught here. And notice that qualifying word may, right? Those two may achieve eternal salvation, right? So it's leaving that door open, right? But such a person and any person who's saved is saved through the grace of Jesus Christ that flows into, listen to me, that flows into and through the Catholic Church. So even if that person who, as described in this paragraph, and there may be many, over the course of time, that you sort of meet this description, you might say, may achieve eternal salvation. Okay, last paragraph. Although in ways known to himself, God can lead, no, can lead those who through no fault of their own are ignorant of the gospel. Um, and that's not, that's not being disparaging by the word ignorant there. It simply means they literally are uh, without knowledge of it, right? They don't know it are ignorant of the gospel, to that faith without which it is impossible to please God, to, to please him, the church still has the obligation and also the sacred right to evangelize all men. So hopefully that little bit of commentary helps us understand what's going on in the paragraph. Let's go back now to Lumen Gentium, armed with that little bit of explanation uh, that we find in the Catechism. And I want to read again that sentence right in the middle. You don't have to bring it up, Angela, since we've already had it. I think it's all right. But it says um, in Lumen Gentium, paragraph 8, that paragraph we were just looking at before we turned to the Catechism, this church, right, the sole church of Christ, constituted and organized as a society in the present world, subsists in the Catholic Church, right? What that means is that all the graces and all the gifts that are fundamental to salvation are found within the Catholic Church, right? So we think about the many gifts and graces of of the Catholic Church, beginning with um, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who's present in the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, and who presents himself to us in the fullness of the sacramental life, in the sacred scriptures, in the teaching office of the Church. We can go on and on and on, sacred tradition. Now, what about those various, uh, let's say, communities— that are not um, in um, that are not in union with Rome. What about them? So that would I'm talking in particular about uh, the let's say various Protestant evangelical movements at which there is cataloged over forty thousand. Well, this document here, I think, is getting at in a very very careful way. Uh, the notion that the, those various gifts that I mentioned, which reside completely and fully so that nothing's tainted, nothing's missing within the Catholic faith, 
as I said earlier, that can bubble out and are received by many various people. Think about someone who goes to the Bible church, right? And their preacher gets up and is expositing the Word of God. Well, there may be any number of aspects of that person's uh, preaching that are um, that may be deficient and may be lopsided, maybe having various doctrinal issues with it, right? Nevertheless, inasmuch as the Word of God is being preached, that the charisma of Jesus Christ, right, as found in, the, let's say, the New Testament, is being proclaimed, then we can ask the question, is that an element of sanctification? Yes. Is it found outside the visible confines of the church? Obviously, yes, right? So, and this is just one example. Now, when it comes to the sacraments, that's a little bit more nuanced discussion, right? Because there's all sorts of ecclesial and canonical things here, like whether someone's being baptized in water and in Trinitarian baptism. But supposing that those canonical requirements are met, that a person's being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, right? And in living water, right? The church accepts those cases as valid baptism, right? Now, I mentioned that there are a couple of Bible verses, um, and I want to give these to you, that I think are very helpful to kind of round out our discussion. So in the paragraphs that we just read from the Catechism, and let me just get back there quickly, so paragraph uh, 846, um, it mentions, uh, let's see, two scripture verses, okay? And in your catechism, the verses that I'm getting at are Mark 16, 16, and John 3, verse 5. Mark 16, 16, and John 3, verse 5. In paragraph uh, 846, again, I took them out to just make the document cleaner, but uh, it's where it says, hence they could not be saved. You see that in the second paragraph under 846, it's the last in that little uh, indented paragraph there, the last couple sentences. Hence, they could not be saved who, knowing that the Catholic Church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would either refuse to enter it or remain in it. So it's there that uh, the Catechism brings in a couple of verses from Scripture, okay? Now, let me read them. Let's read them together, okay? First, Mark 16, 16. This is kind of interesting, right, to go on a little Bible hunt when you see what and I think you'll see what, um, what the church is trying to emphasize in the catechism and explaining this whole idea of subsisting. Uh, Mark 16, 16 says this. And the context here is Jesus uh, speaking to his disciples, right, um, at, after the resurrection. Okay, here's what it says. Verse 14, afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves, as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. It's kind of similar, but different, right, to what's said in in the Catechism, right, about like someone who who understands that the Catholic Church is necessary for salvation, because all the gifts necessary for salvation subsist in the Church, because the Church is the bride of Christ, and he founded one church, right, and knows that and then resists it. Well, here it's kind of similar, except it's those who refuse 
uh, to, to believe in the resurrection. So he, he upbraids them for that. Okay. Verse 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, which is a text that's quoted uh, in Lumen Gentium because of its uh, kind of broad description of salvation intended for all creation and how it's the church's mission to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all creation. But then look at verse 16. This is the key verse. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Okay. Now, before I comment on it further, let's read the second text that uh, the catechism references. And this one is from John chapter 3, and it's verse 5. So I'll give you a second to turn there. John chapter 3, verse 5, this is in Jesus' uh, discourse with Nicodemus, right? And if you know your Gospel of John, you know that this text is foundational in our understanding of baptism and its necessity for salvation, right? Remember, Jesus says to, to Nicodemus, you must be born again, and he's confused. He says, how can I be born again from my mother's womb? And Jesus responds, what? Let's look at John 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he fleshes that out in verse 5, and this is the verse that the Catechism quotes in talking about this notion of salvation. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Okay, so let's try to put some of this together quickly, right? Because we want to get on to some other stuff, too. We now understand what is being said by this paragraph in Lumen Gentium a little bit better, right? We're not saying that if someone is outside of the church, visibly speaking, that they cannot be saved. We understand that, right? We also understand that the gifts necessary for salvation were given fully and completely and subsist, right, in their fullness in the Catholic Church. Okay, we also saw how the Catechism gave us a little bit more understanding. And then these two Bible passages, I think, go a little bit further. And I think the reason the Catechism brings these in is because they both mention two elements, two criteria, faith and baptism, right? Without which, it says, uh, Jesus says salvation is, 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 is not possible. And so then you begin to kind of ask the question like, well, okay, Lumen Gentium does say that a person may be apart from the Christ, be apart from Christ, and even apart from baptism, and may be saved. And yet, on the other hand, to kind of counterbalance that, it seems like the catechism is stressing these two elements of faith, that is faith in Jesus Christ, and baptism in a particular way. Now, does it is there a confusion here? It's like, well, which is it? And like, you can be saved without these things, but then there's this necessity in a particular way of the elements of faith and baptism. And the way I like to describe it to my non-Catholic friends is kind of like a bullseye, right? If you think of a bullseye or of concentric circles, right? I think you could say, it's fair to say that in that very center bullseye, right, maybe among other things, would be those elements that Jesus mentions, which are faith and baptism, right? And then we go out from there, we begin to add those other elements that also subsist in the church, which are crucial to salvation, right? Living the sacramental life, 
um, confirmation, right? Stirring up those, those, those gifts of the Spirit. The preaching of the Word of God, right? Regular confession, all these other things. Then you go beyond the Catholic Church and you say, well, what other elements are there um, that a person may be receiving? Various dimensions of truth, right? Hearing of the Word of God. Right? And you go out further and further, and you're starting to move away from, from that bullseye. And, you know, the way I've explained it to my friends is, look, God intends for every person to reach salvation. The question we have to ask ourselves, every one of us, is how much we desire that. And if we desire it, are we willing to pursue the truth and follow Jesus Christ to the very center of the gifts of salvation, right? So this doesn't mean that a person cannot be saved outside the visible church. God in his infinite wisdom is the judge of every soul, right? But at the same time, there is this kind of challenge that is laid down by Jesus Christ of these essential fundamental gifts of, you might say, belief in the sacramental life. So I certainly hope and pray that many people that I know that are outside the Catholic faith will, will be saved. I think about some of my own favorite, um, even heroes. I talk often on my uh, Facebook page when I'm teaching about, you know, people like C.S. Lewis. And I certainly have the greatest respect for him and for many, many, many other, uh, you know, um, Protestant saints with a small S, right? People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and the list goes on and on and on, right? In addition to that, I know many people who are Orthodox and who are evangelical, uh, Christians who have such, uh, who are such remarkable witnesses for Jesus Christ that I learn much from them. What about when we go beyond Christendom? And I think there, you know, the, the challenge is, is well, it's, um, it can be sobering, right? Because while the Catholic Church does say in Lumen Gentium that such may be saved, um, it's sort of like you're moving further and further from that, those radiating concentric circles of salvation, if that makes sense. Now for Catholics, I think in particular, listening tonight, we ought to get down on our knees and thank God for the grace of salvation that we have received in and through baptism, through, through the church, and also to pray for, though, let's just bring it home, for those who are in the church, right? Because that's, uh, if there's one sobering, sober warning here, it's for those who do know that the Catholic Church is the way of salvation and then reject it. And um, I don't know a lot of people who have outright closed their fists and rejected the Catholic Church who are Catholic. But I know far too many who are sort of, and I'm not judging them, but who are sort of indifferent to it, right? They're turned off by this or by that or by the abuse scandal and you know, understand these various things. But we need to pray that those would come back into, come back into the fold. Now, I want to move on. But before I do, Angela, if you can put up that document one more time, uh, from the catechism, that is. And um, in that document, or maybe, uh, and hopefully Angela will have this up on the website too. I don't really have time to comment on it here, but if you can go down to where it says that theologian, um, for those that want some more advanced study on this, much more than I can do here, I'd recommend this book by Stephen Hip. Um, called The One Church of Christ, Understanding Vatican II. And had we time, there was some nice quotes in here that I, that I sort of pulled out that I think would really be helpful. Um, you may want to check out that book again by Stephen Hip, S-T-E-P-H-E-N. 
HIP, H-I-P-P, uh, just came out in 2019, actually, by Emmaus Academic, uh, called Understanding Vatican II, the One Church of Christ. But we'll have to leave um, the topic there in terms of uh, this, and I hope, I know we spent a, a lot of time, and I guess I'll come back now, Angela, and thank you. Um, but, um, but hopefully it was a very worthwhile uh, discussion. But let's go on, just at least briefly, to a few other um, of the chapters before we come to the one we want to end on, and that's chapter eight. Okay, so um, in chapter uh, four, and, and I'm going to ask Angela to bring up now the, she's really earning her money tonight, bring up the uh, uh, document on Lumen Gentium again, right? And we'll, we'll, we'll be back on this now. Okay, uh, and so it's, uh, it's chapter four, which begins on page 33. Um, you know, because last time we talked about um, the, the bishops in, in a particular way, as well as uh, the papacy, the priesthood, which is in chapter three, uh, the diaconate. So let's move on to the laity. Um, now, what's really interesting about Lumen Gentium is the way that it highlights the role of the lady. And I just want to point out a few of the salient quotes. So the second uh, sentence here uh, gets us going, and it says, Everything that has been said of the people of God is addressed, watch this, equally to, the, to laity, religious, and clergy. But because of their situation and mission... However, certain things pertain particularly to, laity, to the laity, to both men and women, the foundations of which must be more fully examined owing to the special circumstances of our time. And then it adds, um, sort of, it's sort of like this next sentence is sort of saying directly to the lady, hey, we understand just how significant you are in the body of Christ. And here's what it says, the pastors indeed know well how much the laity contribute to the welfare of the whole church. And I think here by pastors, you have to read it more broadly than just, you know, your own pastor, although they're included, but it really sort of means the bishops, you might say, right? So the so sort of the church hierarchy, the bishops understand just how much um, the laity to contribute. Now, paragraph 31 goes on to say, that uh, the laity, the term laity here is understood to mean all the faithful except those in holy orders, and those belong to a religious state. We're not going to really have time to deal, unfortunately, tonight with the uh, penultimate uh, chapter on, um, I should say chapter uh, six, that is, not seven, six, on religious, but it deals with them in their own right, um, approved by the church. That is, the faithful who by baptism are incorporated into Christ are placed in the people of God and in their own way share the priestly, prophetic, and kingly office. In other words, the threefold office of the church. So what's, what's particularly noteworthy, I think, about, about this section that I want you to be aware of, and it goes on from page 33 to page 39 of our document, is that there are certain things that the church understands certain ways, I should say, that salvation can reach the world that only come through the laity. In other words, while the document has stressed that salvation is, subsists in the Catholic Church, and then went on to talk about the key role of the bishops, in the College of the Bishops, as well as, of course, the Bishop of Rome, priests, um, and, and the diaconate, it wants to stress that there are certain charisms and gifts 
that belong particularly uh, to to the laity. And uh, in paragraph 35, let me just read this, and you can look it up later. It says, that special state of life, um, sorry, that state of life that is sanctified by a special sacrament, namely married and family life, has a special importance in this prophetic office. And it goes on to say, married partners in a special way, uh, quote, have their own proper vocation. And this is important to stress, right? Um, it, it's, 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 it's not been reported enough that the Catholic Church indeed articulates and understands marriage as a vocation. I want to say that again, right? When we talk about vocations, we understandably usually talk first and foremost about vocations to the priesthood, as we should. But think about it this way, right? First of all, we know that there are so many laity, many more laity in the world than our beloved priests, right? And we need holy families. We need holy marriages. And to go for, not for their own sake and for the salvation of the married couple themselves, for their children and their grandchildren, but also other families that they interact with, right, and their witness to the world. But also think about it. If we're going to have vocations to the priesthood and to the religious life, isn't it necessary or at least extremely vital that we have holy families? Now, I will say I have had a number of seminarians that have come from families of divorced parents and who, you know, have various, you know, challenges in their families. And so I'm not saying that, hey, you know, good priests only come from holy families. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that they are a fundament, they're fundamental to the recipe, you might say, of more and more vocations. But this uh, chapter, folks, is, is not getting at, hey, we need holy families so we can have healthy priests. It's simply saying we need holy families because the family, and in particular lay people, individuals within that family, can go to places that the priest or the deacon or the religious can't go. The deacon maybe to some degree, right? But they still represent the, the office of, um, of the church in kind of a, in, in an ordained sense. But think about the workplace. Think about school. Think about social media. Think about all those venues, talking to you directly here, lay folks, right, that you go to, right? Another thing that this document uh, says, this is also in the same section, is that one of the roles of the family in particular and I'm going to quote now, is to, to, to build up and to quote the value and ordering of the whole creation and praise to God. By their secular activity, they help one another achieve greater holiness of life. What does that mean? First, what, is, what does it mean by secular activity? Well, it doesn't mean anything, you know, uh, it just means that which is not the sacred, right? So outside of the context of church, right? So in your health club and your workplace, right? That's what it means by secular. It doesn't mean you know, unholy or something like that, right? So you have the capacity to build up lay people, other lay people through that everyday witness and walk of life that you, that you offer and that, that you give. Um, what's interesting, a little just commentary quickly on um, Lumen Gentium is after this document was released, there was a proliferation of uh, various family apostolates that began growing in the first really months and years uh, after Vatican II, and part of it was the 
really the church throwing down the gauntlet here, you might say, in terms of challenging and encouraging the laity to live out their vocation as married people, and not only as married people, right, but for all who are not ordained, right? It could be, um, um, and not called a religious life, could be a single person as well, but for in all sorts of, you know, uh, variations. And we're talking essentially, though, about the laity and about family life. And, uh, and we've seen that continue to, to flourish and thrive, not just in Bible studies. Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, I know a priest uh, from Mundelein who just went and heard about Alpha for Catholics. I know some people love it, other people don't. Um, I've heard great things about it. And there's all sorts of movements beyond small Christian communities. Um, I've been a part in the past of this movement called uh, That Man Is You for Men. There's all sorts of things. And these begin in particular to germinate and flourish after Vatican II. So a lot of times we talk about the negativity that happened after Vatican II, but, but what I'm suggesting is if you actually look at this document and the fruit of it, we can see that many family apostolates and marriage apostolates were born um, and developed after Vatican II. Okay. All right. Um, let's look at another key chapter beginning on page 40. Um, so this paragraph, chapter five, is a very critical one to the to the building blocks of this document, sort of right in the center, as it were, on the call to holiness. Here's what it says. And it's interesting, right, that it comes right after chapter three and four. Chapter three, you might say, is on the bishops. Chapter four is on the laity. Now chapter five brings it all together and lays it out there that we are all called to holiness. Here's what it says. The church whose mystery is set forth by this sacred council is held as a matter of faith to be unfailingly holy. Next paragraph, paragraph 40. The Lord Jesus, divine teacher and model of all perfection, preached holiness of life, of which he is the author and maker, to each and every one of his disciples without distinction. Right? Here is one of the most challenging uh, phrases that I think Jesus has ever, ever uttered, and also beautiful, but challenging, right? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this chapter goes on to talk about the ultimate goal of our Christian life, which is that we would become partakers of the divine nature. This is mentioned in paragraph 40, just about uh, four lines from the bottom of the page there. And then if we go down to page 41, in paragraph 41, um, we see a kind of nice summary of what the document wants us to understand and take away, and it's this. Quote, the forms and tasks of life are many, but holiness is one. And just to continue on this theme of uh, the laity, if we go down to page 42, Christian married couples, Christian married couples, and parents following their own way should support one another. This is the second time the documents brought this up, right? In grace all through life with faithful love and should train their children lovingly received from God in Christian doctrine and evangelical virtues. Next page, page 43. Um, it mentions some particular ways that holiness should be played out in the church. Let me just mention a few of the ones uh, to draw to your attention. Uh, first full paragraph, it says, in a special way, we're still in the chapter called The Call to Holiness, in a special way, those who are weighed down by poverty, infirmity, sickness, and other hardships should realize that they are united to Christ, 
who suffers for the salvation of the world. Let those who feel the same who suffer persecution for the sake of justice, those whom the Lord declared blessed in the gospel, and those whom the God of all grace who has called us to eternal glory in Christ Jesus will restore himself, restore, establish, and strengthen and settle. So it's a beautiful admonition for all times, but we're seeing persecution increasing, my friends, around the globe of Christians. And this is a great reminder that people in all stations of life, and in particularly, it mentions those who are suffering, whether it's through poverty, through sickness, might be martyrdom, right? Are called to unite those sufferings to Jesus Christ. Next paragraph. Accordingly, all Christians in the conditions, duties, and circumstances of their life, and through all these, watch this, will sanctify themselves more and more if they receive all things with faith from the hand of the Heavenly Father and cooperate with the divine will, thus showing forth that in the temporal service, the love which God has loved the world. Let me come back on screen. So, you know, we were talking just a couple of minutes ago, right, about how this idea of the concentric circles of salvation, right, how it subsists in the church, it's also found outside the church, right? We want to be as close to that epicenter as possible, right? So grace flows from Jesus Christ into and through the church, but it's up to us to respond to that. And how are we doing that today? And how are we doing it that? I'd love to hear from a few folks and what they're getting out of this and we, as we bring the hour to a close in a few minutes. And the same thing here, you have that qualifier, right? It's not just that salvation goes out like a blanket and we're all covered, right? Church is saying here very, very clearly, it is how we choose to respond to all of those things, right? Um, if, if through all of these things, will sanctify themselves more and more. What does it mean to sanctify ourselves? Well, the church is telling us throughout this document, right? Stay close to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? To be in the church, the church of Jesus Christ, to be participating, to be obedient to the bishops, right? To be respectful of our priests, to be supporting our deacons, to receive the life of grace that comes through the sacraments, particularly the Holy Eucharist, right? To be steeped in the word of God, right? To not be grieving the Holy Spirit, but to be, uh, to be, to be um, glorifying the Spirit by how we lived, for the laity as well, to be leading lives of witness and of character that will build up others and draw others to the church. So there's always that kind of if here, right? But uh, paragraph 42, just for your notes, says this. But if charity is to grow and fructify, that is to, to make fruitful, right? To fructify in the soul like a good seed, each of the faithful must willingly hear the word of God and carry out his will with deeds. Right? This is very much the theology right, of the book of James. Right? Uh, with the help of God's grace, he must frequently partake of the sacraments, chiefly the Eucharist, partake in the liturgy. He must constantly apply himself to prayer, self-denial, active brotherly service, and the practice of all virtues, which I think it means both the theological uh, and, the, and the cardinal virtues, right? And so that's paragraph 42. Boy, you want to talk about a roadmap to, to sainthood and to sanctity. The church is giving it to us right there. I mean, it's so important. Let me read that again. If charity is to grow and fructify or grow in the soul of a good seed, like a good seed, each of the faithful— must willingly hear the word of God 
carry out his will with deeds, with the help of his grace. He must frequently partake of the sacraments, chiefly the Eucharist, partake in the divine liturgy, constantly apply himself to prayer, self-denial, active brotherly service, and the practice of all virtues. I don't know about you, I count no less than eight things on that to-do list there. Okay, so we're running out of time, but we want to end on a very, very high note here. So let's go on to uh, page 49. Chapter 7 is called the Pilgrim Church, and there's a lot that's in here that's critical. Let me summarize it this way. It's basically talking about uh, the church eschatologically, right? That the final age has already begun, and therefore um, it's important to march on to progress towards death, towards the end of our lives, in the church, towards salvation, and towards Jesus Christ. So it has a lot to talk here about the church suffering, in purgatory, praying for the dead, um, about how we always believe that the church's martyrs are um, gifted with salvation in a particular way, and much more that has to do with eschatology. Um, talks about the communion of saints, um, and um, there's much more in here. But we're going to go on to chapter um, 8, which begins on page 54, and this will um, bring our, uh, our, um, our three-week discussion to a close here. Uh, this is uh, one of the most beautiful reflections and meditations on the Blessed Virgin Mary, not only in Lumen Gentium, uh, but in Vatican II. And I would argue in some ways that's been promulgated by the church in the 20th century. And I wouldn't say that lightly, but it's really quite a beautiful theological description of our necessity of embracing Mary as mother, not just Catholics, but all Christians, and in fact, all people. Here's how it begins. Wishing in his supreme goodness and wisdom to effect the redemption of the world, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, that we might receive the adoption of sons. There's again that theme we've seen, right, all the way through of adoption. They're quoting uh, the Apostle Paul in chapter, um, in Galatians chapter 4. Um, it goes on to say, Join to Christ the head and in communion with all his saints, the faithful must in the first place reverence the memory of the glorious ever, glorious ever Virgin Mary, Mother of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to say quickly that uh, the Vatican II document has not, um, has not set aside the communion of saints. In fact, you have to go back to read the previous chapter, chapter 7, where it talks about the communion of saints. It's now kind of culminating, right, to devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, the saint of saints, as it were, right? Now, um, I'll come back on the screen here. Um, in summary, what this document stresses what this document stresses in chapter eight is a couple of things about the Blessed Virgin Mary. I already alluded to a couple. Number one, that she is the mother of the church and she is the mother of all Christians. And then in some sense, she's the mother of all people because um, just, as, just as Eve was born as the mother of the living, so Mary is the new Eve. And it talks about, and it quotes Irenaeus, how St. Irenaeus of how Mary unties, Mary's not of disobedience, it stresses the title Mother of God in a number of ways. Let me give you a quote here. The Virgin Mary, um, who at the message of the angel received the word of God in her heart and in her body and gave life to the world, is acknowledged and honored as being truly the Mother of God. 
And that's a title, as you probably know, goes all the way back to 431 and earlier even than that, but to the Council of Ephesus. Redeemed as she is in a more exalted fashion, by reason of her merits of her son and united to him by a close and indissoluble tie, she is endowed with the high office and dignity of the mother of the Son of God. Now, I don't know if you heard what I read there, because I'm reading quickly, but it says that she is redeemed in a more exalted fashion. Uh, this is a passage that we can share, almost in apologetics, you might say, with our non-Catholic friends. This document talks beautifully, and particularly in this chapter, about how Mary is indeed saved. She is redeemed. But she's redeemed in a more exalted way, right, through her immaculate conception, right? But she is redeemed by the grace of her son, Jesus Christ, and therefore is united to him in a particular way as his mother and as our mother. Um, in paragraph 55 and following, it talks about Mary's role in salvation. And just a couple of quickly things here. It goes all the way back to Genesis, right, and talks about how all of this was prefigured in the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, in, the, in the promise of God's victory over the serpent, the so-called proto-evangelion. It's there that Mary kind of emerges typologically as what it calls our predestined mother. Right? Eve is, in some sense, the mother of all the living. Mary's our true mother with a capital T and capital M. Now, just quickly, one of the things that this document does is it names some of the various titles that belong to Mary. These are found in paragraph 62 and. It says, therefore, the Blessed Virgin Mary is invoked in the church under titles of Advocate, Helper. These are all capitalized, right? Capital A, Advocate, capital H, Helper. Benefactress and Mediatrix. Now, regarding that last one, this, however, is so understood that it neither takes away anything from nor adds anything to the dignity and efficacy of Christ the one mediator, right? So Mary is participating in the cross of Jesus Christ, right? As this title that she embodies as mediatrix of all graces. But behind her is the cross of Jesus Christ, who is the God-man and the one mediator. Um, you know, after Vatican II, there was uh, an effort by some theologians uh, to bring about uh, the so-called fifth dogma, fifth Marian dogma, which pertained to this title mediatrix. And it was St. Uh, Pope John Paul II that put the kibosh on that, not because it was wrong or doctrinally incorrect, but he brought it back to what we might call the fundamental mission of the church as expressed in, in Lumen Gentium, right, right? So if you go back to the very beginning of the document, right, go back, back all the way to uh, what this document says in the first paragraph, right? Christ is the light of humanity, right? We're just closing now with the, with the opening line. Christ is the light of humanity, and it is accordingly the heartfelt desire of this sacred council being gathered together in the Holy Spirit, that by proclaiming his gospel to every creature, it may bring to all men the light of Christ, which shines out visibly from the church. And so we can see in this, in this post-Vatican II development that John Paul II, who was, uh, I think, one of our more Marian popes in modern memory, right, loved and prayed the rosary daily and gives us, gave us encyclicals about the Blessed Virgin Mary and the rosary, still wisely understood as a man of the council and a man of the church how such a dogma, though 
properly construed and dogmatically correct could be a sort of obstacle for those that are outside the church um, who might misunderstand it. So he sort of this was saying, look, the statements are true, but the time is not right at this, at this time. And that was a disappointment to some, but I think it was certainly, from my perspective, the right move. If we understand that this document is, I'm talking about Lewin Gentium as a whole now, right, is trying to help all of us as Christians understand the truth and beauty of the Catholic Church, that salvation is found in her and her alone, in her and her alone, yet flows out of the church uh, to the ends of the earth and wants to water the church for the seeds of salvation so that all men might come to believe the gospel in Jesus Christ. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be world without end. Amen. I apologize that we're about two and a half, three minutes over, but I wanted to pack in as much as we could, as I usually do in, uh, in these sessions. And I think um, we did a, a pretty thorough reading of this document. And, uh, but there's more to, more to it, obviously, right? So um, continue to read on, and uh, I encourage you to, to really meditate on this beautiful, beautiful document. Let's start with uh, Harold's question that he wrote in, which is, Actually, no, I want to start with uh, Sister Michelle's. She was seeing how in the uh, in Lumen Gentium, there's a phrase, there's a language of the church being cultivated or that it's a cultivated field. And she's wondering, is that word cultivated? Is that intentionally supposed to be making us think back to Adam and uh, Genesis? Uh, or is she kind of reading too much behind the between the lines there? Well, I'm not sure if it's reading too much behind it. It's it's certainly it's uh, whenever you whenever you ask a question uh, to me about Genesis, I'm happy to try to find any way to go back there that I can. <laughs> it, it may be it may be that. Um, what came to my mind in reading it though is actually Jesus's parable, and it's, it's this parable of the vineyard, right? And there's also um, in the book of Isaiah this song of the vineyard, and if you're familiar with those passages you know that both of them, the Old Testament and the New Testament one, really give sort of a dire warning uh, in the form of that image in Isaiah and in uh, Jesus's parable about letting our, let's say, spiritual gifts atrophy, right? And, and letting our spiritual lives atrophy. I mean, if you read the parable, it's really chilling. Um you see this image, right, of this field and how, you know, the vine dresser has done everything he possibly could have to, to prepare it uh, for a, a great harvest. Yeah. But at the same time, if it's, if it's not cultivated, then, then it runs the risk of being overgrown with thorns and thistles and being you know, burnt up or whatever you would like to say to continue the metaphor. And, and so I think in using that language of cultivated field, church is reminding us that it is a work, right? It's a work that belongs not only to the shepherds, but to all of us. But I think it's, it's pretty, it should be clear to, to you as I know this is to me after reading, rereading this document that the church is this great gift, but that we cannot take it for granted. We, we have to continue to find our place within the context of our vocation, and then participate in it to the very best of our ability. doesn't mean we're going to 
get everything right. It doesn't mean, you know, we may start a new apostle tomorrow or do this or do that. We've got to remember that it's all through our own station in life. It's going to be different for a priest or for the Pope as it is for the lay person or religious. But we all have that um, really responsibility to use the grace that God's given us through baptism and through our life in the church to, to cultivate our little part of the church. And for all doing that, for all doing that a little bit more, uh, we should we should continue to be very optimistic for the next hundred years of the church, despite the persecution that's clearly here and all the other opposition that's out there. But thank you, uh, Michelle, uh, Sister Michelle, for a very great question. Mm-hmm. Um, Harold writes in and is uh, wondering why um, there are different English translators for each chapter in the document. You know, I to be honest with you, I'm I noticed that, and I'm not sure why that is. I have more kind of um, up close and personal understanding of um, of uh, Dei Verbum, which is where I spend much more uh, study time. So I, I, I noticed that too. I, I don't know I don't know why that is. I don't have an, a direct answer for that. Yeah. We have another question, which was in terms of the goal of the document, what is the difference between Gaudium et Spes and Lumen Gentium? Sacrosanctum Concilium is clearly about reforming the liturgy, Dei Verbum about revelation through both scripture and tradition, but Gaudium et Spes and Lumen Gentium both seem to be about the church slash the church in the world. Uh, what's the best way to see Yeah, I, this is a question that comes up a lot, and I think there's a little confusion about where they're what's the difference between them? Mm-hmm. I think if you actually put them both side by side, you'll see that there's certainly a similarity. They're both obviously talking about the church. But I think what I would say to answer the question is that it's Lumagentium and Lumagentium really alone that tackles um, the very specific task of defining what the church is, right? Mm-hmm. Now, there's we've seen a lot in this document about the nature and mission of the church, how it's both, you know, a mystery and also a human institution, the role of the deacons, the role of the laity, the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So while Lumen Gentium is, does announce that it's, it's about taking the gospel of Jesus Christ through the church out to the world, the emphasis really is looking on, you might say, the inside for the most part, right? Whereas Gaudium et Spes is really kind of direct, is, is going beyond it, is going out to the, the very horizons of the world, various cultural challenges, uh, various challenges in terms of society, politics, civilization, uh, the environment, uh, people groups, warfare, things like this. And so you could say that really in many ways this is an in-house document. It's really the one I think, if you're going to read these two documents, I would say read Lumen Gentium first, first and understand uh, what it's saying about the nature of the church and then go on to read God in space. And I think it'll, it'll, they'll flow together nicely that way. You read the other way. I think it just more logically works together. That way. Um, Teresa is writing in and uh, expressing her gratitude uh, and is wondering what is for your opinion, what is the most surprising theme or notion or statement in the document as a whole? You know, for me, I think, um, and when I first read it years ago, what surprised me um, was how clearly the church laid out this vision that we just saw of the Blessed Virgin Mary. We just had a chance to do a 
kind of a little bit of a, an overview of it. And I really encourage everyone to go back and read it very carefully. Mm-hmm. But see, for me, I had grown up Catholic, but was never really given very, very clear uh, Marian um, catechesis. And I don't fault anyone in particular. It's just, you know, like many young Catholics in the 20th century, it just didn't happen, right? Yeah. And so it was only when I came back into the church that I was reading the documents of Vatican II that I was struck Andy, um, by how clearly the document lifts up the Blessed Virgin Mary, but does so in a way that, of course, is concomitant with all church teaching, right? Mm -hmm. How it clearly stresses that Jesus Christ is the one mediator. Mm -hmm. And you might think that this would be a muddled mess. Like, it's saying all these beautiful things about her that are so extraordinary. And yet, on the other hand, it comes back and says, well, nope, salvation is really only through Jesus Christ, the one mediator. And it's like, well, how can that be? How can she be so involved, right, and be called mediatrix? And yet, on the other hand, the church says uh, that Jesus Christ is the one mediator, and she's, she's the mother of God. She's a disciple. She's one who's saved by him in a more, um, you know, a particular specific way than us, but nonetheless is saved through Jesus Christ. And yet it all hangs together very, very beautifully. And I think one of the reasons for that is that, and this is important to stress near the end here, that Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council, right, is one in a long line of the ecumenical councils of the church. So it builds on the theology of Vatican I and the Council of Trent, going all the way back to to the first council in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So the church has this, uh, this beautiful jurisprudence and wisdom in her capacity to explain things and can always make things more clear and bring them up, but it's always in a way that's consistent with what is said before. And you'll see if you read the footnotes, Andy, that you know, it's quoting so often from scripture, from St. Irenaeus, from the church fathers, and it's clear that this document, really like all the documents of Vatican II, is interested in resourcement, that is going back to the original sources of scripture and tradition. And so I think the way it's able to do this two-step of really exalting Mary, but doing so in a Christological way, um, not to take anything away from the bishops and theologians of Vatican II, is built on this long and steady Catholic tradition going all the way back to the first centuries, where Mary was, um, was, was given great devotion uh, from the very earliest centuries. So it's... It's a beautiful thing, and I'm, I, I only wish I read it when I was 18 or 20 or 25 <laughs> instead of at, what was it, at 30-something. <laughs> you know, it's a theme that always keeps popping up uh, in, in our courses, which is like, just read the primary stuff, and you're always going to be shocked and surprised in a positive way uh, just of how rich it's rich it is and especially i mean this is a horse that's just beaten to death over and over again but we we have to do it on our side too which is especially when it gets to vatican ii you're going to hear crazy crazy stuff and i know it's already been said in this series <clears throat> but you just got to read the documents themselves yeah dr Smith. said one one small comment to that great no. question and it's this one thing that was helpful for me to read as a returning home catholic was to hear the Catholic Church in Vatican II, in Lumen Gentium, talk about, how to put it, um, exaggerations is one word it uses, or excesses Mm -hmm. in devotion, both to the communion of saints and to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And um, that was very, very helpful for me because I understood that the church got it, that sometimes there are excesses 
or, um, you know, things that are overemphasized or exaggerated in Marian piety and trying to bring, bring in a correction there. Um, if you're interested in um, Marian piety, by the way, in Vatican II, I'd recommend one more book uh, as we close, I guess, and that's by Cardinal Ratzinger called Mary, Church at the Source. Mary, Church at the Source. And one of the things that, that Ratzinger points out in Mary, Church at the Source is that Vatican II struck a, a, a very good tension between what he called theological rationality on one hand and believing affectivity on the other. Now, I know it's a mouthful, but what he means by that is sort of like, you know, dogma and prayer, right? Or belief and prayer. In other words, like we have, there has to be this balance between what we believe and what we pray. And what he basically said about, about how Marian um, thought is promulgated in Vatican II and Lumen Gentium was it found that, if you will, happy tension. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you do have that kind of corrective in, in there to say, look, we understand that sometimes people have, have uh, misunderstood certain Marian devotions or, um, or, or private revelations or whatever it is in the context of kind of Marian spirituality. And the church says, yeah, those aren't, those aren't helpful because when those excesses or, or um, distortions uh, occur, they cloud true Marian uh, piety, which is always Christological. And so for me to read those things, it was such a relief that the church is saying, hey, we, we get it, Steve. We understand that, you know, you may have encountered people in your lifetime that have misused or even abused uh, Marian piety, uh, and we want to bring them back to the Christological core. And I thought that was very, very, uh, very, very beautiful, very helpful for me as a, as a returning Catholic. We'll conclude here, guys. We will see you later. Take care. God bless. Good to see you all. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.